The Start On Demand. On demand. We learned on Wednesday that we've reached a sad milestone in Manitoba. 1,000 people have died from COVID-19. 680 CJOB's Tristan Field-Jones put together a feature that honours a healthcare hero who stepped up when a Manitoba family needed her most. There's also an important initiative regarding the vaccine, an influencer-led vaccination campaign, which is encouraging young First Nation people to protect themselves and their communities. We speak with Indigenous comedian and content creator Sherry McKay. And yesterday was Manitoba Day, so today we asked you, what is your favourite spot in our province? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, May 13th podcast for the start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us today on The Start. We learned yesterday that we reached a milestone in Manitoba, and it is not, unfortunately, a a milestone to be celebrated, but it is an important milestone to recognize that 1,000 people in this province have died from COVID-19 over the last 15 months, and... To me, it serves Loren as an important reminder as to why we have been doing everything we've been doing is to try to keep that number from continuing to rise. Yeah, and to try to keep, you know, in in our hearts and minds while we're doing all this, the names and faces. And I think in the beginning, particularly as the pandemic was just moving from China into the rest of the world, we looked at it as numbers, perhaps, right? Maybe statistics. Statistics, and then when when it hit home the first death in Manitoba, and you realized it was you know um, um, someone that you might know, that's when things started to get I think a lot more real. And so there's names and faces we need to remember, moms and dads and uncles and aunts. There was young people whose lives have been lost. Uh, you know, I think again in the beginning that that perception, that assumption, Greg, you know, uh, of who, who might fall victim to COVID played into our psyche a bit. And there's been all sorts of Manitobans who have lost their lives who were healthy. Uh, a year ago, and then the pandemic hit. And it wasn't just people with compromised immune systems or people with underlying conditions or the elderly. It's just a wide swath. And a thousand is a really somber number to think of and reflect upon today. Yeah. And uh, I know we're going to learn a little bit more about at least one or two of those uh, that have been taken from us by COVID-19. But you're right. At the beginning, it was it was a race against the statistics elsewhere, right? China, Italy, and then New York got absolutely devastated by COVID-19. And and those numbers, um, you, you know, I, I'm one of those people who watches the numbers and We've been in all sorts of discussions this week about the probability, the, the likelihood of blood clots is associated with the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine in particular. And I know that in one back and forth with one of our listeners this week, I said, well, the ratio and the, and the number that jumps out for me is 1,000 as we a- approached uh, at that point, 1,000 deaths due to COVID-19 in Manitoba. That's one in 1,400 Manitobans. So think about that. You go to a Winnipeg Jets game with 15,000 people in the building. Uh, that means, you know, 10 people 
if you're into math, if you're into statistics, uh, have been taken from us uh, with COVID-19. So we will have more on this with Global's Brittany Greenslade in our next segment. And at 8.37, Tristan Field-Jones has put together an important feature on this subject. And, of course, you can read more at cjob.com. We also, you mentioned the AstraZeneca vaccine, Greg, and we just wanted to have a follow-up chat on this because we spent a lot of time discussing it yesterday morning. Um, the vaccine newser yesterday with Dr. Joss Reimer. Uh, what was your takeaway from that, Loren? I know you caught some of it. It was, it was um, you know, as we reflected and learned at the same hour that we had hit our 1,000th death in Manitoba, there was this opposite uh, emotion also occurring for me at the same time, right? Where you're thinking, oh man, I, I you knew it was coming, but you can't believe we've lost 1,000 Manitobans. And then on the other side, here we are talking about moving forward and our way out of this and the vaccines. And so they released the news yesterday that, yeah, as we knew, they were opening it up to 18 plus. Um, and so it, I was curious to hear how that was working and what was coming next. And also really, you know, the first dose is just one part of it. And so now the new phrase emerging out of that news conference yesterday was that this will be a two dose summer for Manitobans, that we will get there, that we will have our second dose. And so when that happens, and honestly, I actually am getting a little emotional just saying it because I don't know. I don't know a year ago if we thought, A, we'd still be in it, but B, that we'd be contemplating all these different things with the vaccines. And so the second, the two-dose summer is an important, I don't care if that gets said, said, becomes a buzzword and gets said a million times, like we need those second doses. And when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine, we learned yesterday that Manitoba is pausing those first doses of the vaccine, but that's largely because of supply issues, Greg, and they want to make sure that anyone who had the first gets the second. And so that's been a part of it as well. Yeah, and of course, we were anticipating some results from that study in Great Britain about mixing doses. Uh, if you have a first dose of AstraZeneca and a second dose of Pfizer or vice versa, and uh, we don't have any efficacy results as of yet, a few weeks away from that. But the early uh, and the and the data that was released yesterday was that essentially, yeah, this this works. There aren't necessarily any detrimental effects from it but they are saying that you might feel the uh, side effects a little bit more strongly maybe uh, more situations where you're getting more headache nausea that sort of thing so uh, the information will be critical because there are going to be uh, in my estimation I think it's going to be tough for them to to source enough AstraZeneca for everybody who got the first shot of AZ to get a second shot of AZ, pardon my my uh, lack of Canadian uh, language there. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. And Loren, you said it so eloquently yesterday, and I think I heard it from Dr. Joss Reimer yesterday, just the fact that this continues to be a moving target and we're learning as we go here. I know there've been some anxious times right from the get-go uh, but we, we have to, we have to, I don't know, I, I, I just feel like we have to, to trust the uh, officials that are, are doing their job. Their job is to know what they're doing and, you know, ask critical questions when it's required. But I, I think the guidance is sound. I felt a lot better after yesterday's uh, news conference uh, about the situation we're in with regard to vaccines. And to remember, you know, we've said it a million times, what we know today might not be the same tomorrow. We're learning as we go and everything is evolving and that's hard, but it's no different. You know, if, if I go to the doctor and they pre prescribe me something for whatever might be ailing me and that doesn't work, 
you change up the strategy, right? And that's, it just, you have to dumb it down sometimes to the simplicity of things. And that's how we've been doing it forever. It's just hard in this moment when you want so badly want to get out of this. So two dose summer, here we come. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, in the thick of the third wave and rush to get people vaccinated, we pause to honor the lives lost to COVID-19. Fifteen months into the worldwide pandemic, 1,000 Manitobans have now died. It's an understatement to say their deaths have left a massive hole in the lives of their families, of their friends, and of the communities they grew up in, lived in, and made lives in. Global's Brittany Greenslade now with more. Mothers. Fathers. My mom uh, was a self-described tough old buzzard. She was just so hilarious and just so much fun. People's brothers and sisters and loved ones. She loved to cook and uh, she made a peach cobbler to die for. But at the end of the day, she had a good life. That's what I hold on to. 15 months into the pandemic, they're the 1,000 Manitobans no longer with us. With everything he's been through and the struggle he had to live all these years, I'm kind of relieved that he's in his happy place. She was the glue of the family. I still have a hard time to believe she's gone, but I know she is. It's that grief and the overwhelming loss so many are dealing with. By now, we're all only one or two degrees separation away from somebody that has died. There's somebody who passed away, somebody with a life, somebody who had parents or children, brothers and sisters, friends and family, that this is an individual who was loved and cared for. And now there's this whole community around them that is grieving the loss. It's a normal reaction to a painful situation, says therapist Carolyn Klassen. But with 1,000 Manitobans no longer with us, there's a collective grief in our community. When we hear about the death of one more person, it helps us, it kind of gives us permission to get in touch with all that we grieve. And we all grieve so much these days. Whether it's a lost life, a lost year, or the loss of normalcy. It gets pushed off to the side and gets brought up fresh all over again because grief is the price we pay for love. A price many have paid over and over again this pandemic. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. I mean, a double edge to that sword is the fact that we haven't been able to grieve as we're accustomed. We haven't been able to have the gatherings that we're used to having in order to grieve with one another, to, to commiserate and to share our memories of those that we've lost. And that's not just those who have passed from COVID-19, Loren, that's that's most funerals over the past year. I know there was a point in time where uh, there weren't any restrictions on the number of people that could gather for a funeral. But for the most part in the last 15 months, if you've lost a loved one, the grief process has been very different than it's normally been. And of course, our thoughts are with those families yesterday, this morning, and every morning since we've learned of new deaths, uh, which feels like an almost daily occurrence. And you're right, Greg, the the part that perhaps is a struggle for so many is that they haven't been able to say goodbye like they wanted to, haven't been able to gather like they want to. And such a big part of of remembering the lives lost and trying to move forward is having that moment together with family and friends to say goodbye to someone you've lost. And I, the, the fact that so many haven't been able to do that like they would have uh, adds to the sting and the hurt.
The Jets locked up third place in the North Division earlier this week, and it means a first-round date with the Edmonton Oilers in the playoffs in the North American Ice Hockey League Championships next week. Yes, indeed. And this is a first for this version of the Jets, who haven't met the Oilers in the playoffs since their return to Winnipeg in 2011. And obviously, the Atlanta Thrashers never met the Oilers either. The Thrashers only played uh, one, exactly one playoff series in their existence. But the rivalry between the teams or the cities, the however you want to phrase it, goes back decades all the way to the 1970s during the WHA days. It largely worked in the Jets' favor. Back then, the Jets met and bested the Oilers twice in the WHA playoffs as the Jets won three Avco World Trophies as champions of the World Hockey Association, Loren, including the very last playoff series between the Jets and the Edmonton Oilers, who featured a, a, an 18-year-old Wayne Gretzky. But then... Thank you, Forge. Felt like we needed oh, some geez. scary music then. But then... Both teams moved into the NHL, and it seems the hockey gods moved from us to them. During the 1980s, the Jets made it to the postseason eight times, but almost every time, six to be exact. It was the Oilers that cut short any dreams of a championship win. Greg, I don't know if we even need to mention what happened in 1990. Either way, you made it clear in this story from Global's Joe Scarpelli that fans and former players are still feeling the sting. Left news, Joe Daly's. Former Jets goalie Joe Daly is looking forward to watching Winnipeg and Edmonton go head-to-head in the 2021 playoffs. The rivalry is deep, and the hatred uh, by amongst a lot of the Winnipeg Jets fans against the Oilers is deep. Dating back to the 70s. In the WHA days when, uh, when we won our last championship, against the Oilers. But since then, Edmonton beat Winnipeg repeatedly over the next decade, going 6-0 and in playoff series against the original Jets. It was like always being the little brother and getting beaten down. They had everything and we had nothing. That's what it felt like at times. And it still hurts CJOB morning host and Jets fan Greg Mackling. It feels like there's a potential to relive the nightmare all over again. And I hate to say that out loud, but I think that's what long-time... Hockey fans in Winnipeg, like me, might be thinking. The Jets will have their work cut out for them, but CGOB sports director Kelly Moore says anything is possible in the postseason, known for surprises. The Winnipeg Jets are going to be the underdogs. I don't think there's any doubt about that. They lost 7 of 9 to Edmonton, uh, including, what was it, the last 5 or 6 in a row. Should the Winnipeg Jets be written off? Don't sleep on them. In fact, Daly doesn't even think that championship team in 79 was the best one at the time. We had better teams than that last year team, but that last year team, uh, it, it played with a lot of heart, a lot of, a lot of guts. Joe Scarpelli, Global News. Now, Loren, was that music, was that trivializing my pain? <laughs> was that that tone that you were taking? Trying to to ease my pain. Like, I'm I'm really not sure of how I should be feeling about you right now. I know how much you loved Wayne Gretzky, so... (laughs) No, here's what happened. Is that at the heart of this? No, so back in 2016, I think um, when we had the Heritage Classic game, I think it was 2016, I did a feature for Global News on the rivalry between Edmonton Mm -hmm. and the Jets. So I just sort of had some of those stats at my disposal in an old article. But it was only about, what, Forche, 20 seconds to air. I was like, Jeff, Jeff, Forche. 
I need some scary music. He's like, ah, <laughs> like, where am I pulling this out All of? right. I said, when I start talking, cue it. Because, yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare. You used the word nightmare. I could have used nightmare yes. on Elm Street music. Would that have helped you out? What nope, street did you grow up on? No, it wouldn't have helped anything because, you, you know, for as much as uh, Jets fans who love this team uh, live and die with them, the Oilers are genuinely the bane of our 1980s and 1990s existence. And, you know, everybody wants to talk about the 1990 Jets, and I'll touch on that really quickly here. But the Oilers, in fact, beat the Jets 16 playoff games in a row Mm -hmm. at one point (laughs) to uh, come out of the the 1980s and uh, storming towards their five Stanley Cup championships. And yesterday in my conversation with Joe, I mentioned the fact that, that yes, 1990 was heartbreaking because the Jets were up 3-1 on a Gretzky-less Oilers and then the Oilers stormed back. They go on to win the Stanley Cup. But in 84-85, the Oilers team was so good that it was named the best NHL team ever. Well, that year, the Jets had six 30-goal scorers. No team has ever done that before and no team has ever done that since. Dale Howard, Chuck, we all know if you followed the Jets and lived with them as many of us did, broken ribs, didn't play in that series. Edmonton sweeps them in the second round after the Jets beat Calgary. And to this day, you know when you're sitting around the campfire having a few beers and 1984-85 comes up and you start talking Jets, a lot of us believe we could have beat that best team ever. So it does bring back some old memories, some old pain, even though it's not the same franchises facing off anymore. I know there are some of you yelling at the radio that very same thing as well. We get it. It's Edmonton <laughs> versus Winnipeg. I like how Brett's trying to play you off with some music right now. And you're like, I'm not done. I'm still angry. <laughs> Loren just uh, nailed it. Yeah, was just just waiting. Like, got to be out at six forty three, but not just gonna go to six forty four. Watching the clock, the music gets louder. It's like an academy speech, and he's it's like, "I got people to yell at still. I'm not done." Right now, we want to talk about Manitoba. Yesterday was Manitoba Day, so today we want to pick up the conversation. We threw it out briefly yesterday. We wanted to know what's your favorite spot. In Manitoba. So we need you to text us at 204-780-6868 for a chance to win a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. Could be a general region, could be a specific spot where you enjoy the, the scenery or you feel at peace. Maybe it's a restaurant or, or could be as simple as a park bench somewhere. Just shoot us a text, tell us a story, share a memory, 204-780-6868 for your chance to win. Let's go around the horn here. Cameron Poitras, start us off. I gotta go with the forks. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, honorable mention any sitting on any lake, but if uh, on a dock or something like that, but if I gotta pick a specific spot, I gotta choose the forks. Um, it seems to get better and better every single time I go there. There's more and more stuff to do, and it seems like there's a, it's a mini vacation every time I head out there. It's like, well, what are we gonna do today? We'll go to the forks and uh, it's it's just it's just such a great spot, and uh, yeah, it just it just keeps getting better. And that, it's like the first place you take anybody when you come to town. When they come to town, anyways, let's go to the Forks. That was a good sales pitch, Ken. Yeah. You should send that to. I'm gonna the go forks. there right now. Well, I'll just you know I got an envelope last week. I won't give you an amount. But it was substantial. My phone's ringing. It's Claire Mackay. She's <laughs> she have a word. Jeff Braun. 
For me, it's uh, my buddy's cabin up by Hillside Beach, which is just a little bit mm. north of the Grand Beach area there. And uh, my buddy's parents built that cabin in 1993 when we were 17 years old. That's right around the age where you could, you know, f- start going away for the weekend with your buddies. And uh, whenever we got the cabin for the weekend, it was always the best weekend of the year. And uh, last we were actually out there, a bunch of us, just this past September uh, and went to bed a little earlier than we used to, but it was still a lot of fun. <laughs> also a great spot. I went to Hillside Beach when I was a kid. Just, uh, some great memories there. Forte. Uh, let's go to the White Shell, especially at Brereton Lake. Uh, my uncle has a cottage there. He's had it there for years and used to go there when I was a kid. So a lot of good memories and uh, remember canoeing and there used to be a rock. I don't know if it's still there. A rock that would pop over the water and it was painted like a shark. So I know uh, Greg would love that. <laughs> and, uh, I'd love it. You'd absolutely love it. We called it Jaws. The Jaws. Sh- uh, I hear they have shark. football fish in the water there, too, as well. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys seen that thing? Oh, that That's fish crazy. that washed up on the beach? That is the stuff nightmares are made of from the deepest parts of the ocean. <laughs> oh, it looks like something out of a like a nuclear meltdown. Just <laughs> scary stuff. Uh, Loren, what about you? Well, I mentioned yesterday my favorite spot is uh, Clear Lake with Sagamine, Riding Mountain National Park. And uh, it, you would think it would be sitting on the dock and, you know, sitting on the water and, and watching the sunset or the sunrise. And that's fantastic. But I honestly just love the moment every single time. There's a little hill you have to take up and then take it down into the park before you kind of access the national park area. And just the... Every year, the moment where you get to go up that hill and I tell the kids to roll down the windows and they're always annoyed with me because I say, smell that air. And they're like, mom, every time. <laughs> and I love it. Like the scene, it just, it, everything opens up below you and just instantly the shoulders have that relaxed thing. They come down and you're like, yes, it's time to just chill. And that is my favorite spot in this province. It's funny that you mentioned the smell thing because anytime I get some somewhere that's like significantly out of town, that's the first thing, right? You get out of the car and you go, oh, that just smells so yep. fresh and clean. I like it. Uh, GMAC. Ah, so many uh, amazing places to cottage and to visit and to be by the water. And, you know, Loren, you're right. Uh, some of the most incredible views anywhere in Manitoba are a couple of those uh, valley drives in and around Minidosa. I always used to call Minidosa the prettiest place between Canmore and Kenora. And, and I'll go by that. But if you ever get an opportunity to go to the east side of Lake Winnipeg, 10 years ago, I went up to Bloodvane First Nation and flew in there over Lake Winnipeg. We went up the interlake in the plain and then made a hard right turn across Hecla and then across Lake Winnipeg. It was like flying over Gibson's BC, that west coast of British Columbia that's so gorgeous. It was, you know how when you're somewhere in Winnipeg and you look at each other and you go, I, I don't feel like I'm in Winnipeg anymore. And that's sort of the mark of whether it's a good place to visit or not. This is absolutely, it, it, it's, it's a world away. And if you ever get an opportunity to visit the east side of Lake Winnipeg, I would endorse it. And I would, uh, I would suggest that you take that opportunity every single time. And Loren, we've got a text here from Evelyn. She's with you. My favorite place in Manitoba is definitely Clear Lake. I went there every summer as a child and have taken my family there every year as well. The beautiful little town site with all the shops and the pretty lake and national park is a must-see. Do you concur? The shops? 
Yeah. Oh, they've got cute little shops. That, there's ice cream abound abounds at Clear Lakes. You'll have as many cones as, as you can stuff uh, in. <laughs> the food is great. Like uh, there's all these little local businesses that are doing what they can with a really short summer season because at the park up there, it's only open from. It's not like national parks out west. You're really only there's a few that open year round, but the rest really rely on that summer crowd. So you got to get in and buy your knickknacks. And I keep trying to buy a can- candles from up there that actually smell like Clear Lake, but haven't. No one's quite bottled it for me yet, right? Where I can light that candle. And be like, yes, I'd wear that cologne any day of the week. <laughs> so tell us a story about your favorite spot in Manitoba for your chance to win the $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. We'll give it away just after 9.15. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Text message from Gene at 204-780-6868 on your favorite spot in Manitoba and why. Gene says, the parking lot on the north side of the waterfront complex in Gimli, where I can look up to the third floor balcony and still picture my dad standing there calling down, hi, honey, come on up. That is just lovely. Gene, thank you for that. And thank you to everyone who so far is sharing some really amazing stuff. Once again, you're making our lives difficult in the best possible way. It's going to be hard to pick a winner for that $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza, which we shall give away at 9.15. They're making me want to get a canoe as well. <laughs> some, some of the texts about the LaSalle River and different spots people go, and I'm like, I think I need to get a canoe. So... Good luck with that, husband. I am very familiar with the LaSalle River, given mm. the, uh, the the amount of golf balls oh. I dump into it. <laughs> yeah, you might want to be careful paddling through Kingswood, through the golf course, because it's probably a little more shallow than it's supposed to be. They need to dredge the river for Brett's golf balls. Uh, yeah, I have actually almost hit uh, just random canoers and kayakers as they go by, so... <laughs> Heads up! Have you really? (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, Hey, the word pipeline has been the focus of two major stories this week. Yeah, one of those pipelines moves oil and gas from Alberta to eastern Canada through Michigan, and another had its infrastructure actually held for ransom. One is a long-term issue with potentially gigantic implications for Canada, and the other one just really has us talking, Greg. Yeah, that's right. Roger McKnight, Chief Petroleum Analyst with NPRO, joins us now. Good morning, Roger. Good morning to you all. Well, we, we didn't bring you on here to find out if it's okay to put gasoline in plastic bags. Uh, we know that that's wrong, but we're seeing that in very isolated incidents in the eastern United States to the point where the government had to put out a warning, do not do this. But tell us about the Colonial Pipeline situation and the susceptibility of other utilities and major infrastructure that might be threatened in the same fashion. Well, uh, I think uh, that the Colonial is, of course, a key artery for supply of gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel along the eastern seaboard. Uh, the really critical thing as far as uh, pricing is concerned, if that's a, a big concern, is that it, uh, it feeds what we call the New York Harbor with 900,000 barrels a day of gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. And, and that's where pricing is really set uh, east, uh, east of Thunder Bay um, because uh, it's all based on futures pricing out of New York Harbor. And if there's a shortage at New York Harbor, prices go up in uh, New York State and, uh, and they go to, so they go up in southern Ontario and Quebec and the Maritimes. It's just it's quite amazing. So basically what happened, we had this 
at cyber attack. And, and, and as a result, more than a thousand stations in the U.S. Southeast reported that they were running out of fuel, um, pr- primarily because of panic buying, not because of this attack, Roger. And so now we're talking about the possibility of, of how that could hit Canada and and whether or not we could see prices rise as a result. Is that an actual thing that could happen? Because, you know, there's people out there that will just say, come on, they rise whether good things or bad things are happening with the pipelines. Yeah, yes, they they could actually arise in, in eastern Canada, as I said, east of Thunder Bay, but not not in western Canada at all. That's because uh, pricing is at, uh, basically, uh, prices in Canada aren't made in Canada, they're made in the United States. And if there's a shortage of, or a threatened shortage of, of fuels in the United States, the wholesale prices go up in in uh, in south south of the border, then they go up north of the border. I mean, uh, prices in southern Ontario will follow uh, wholesale prices of Rochester, New York, and Buffalo, and Montreal uh, follows Albany, New York. So we're not in any control of uh, of, of pricing. If that's if that's a concern, as far as supply is concerned. Uh, the, the the colonial is uh, absolutely essential. Getting uh, fuel from uh, Houston to uh, the east, eastern seaboard of the United States, eventually ending up in uh, Linden, New Jersey. So, as far as this Enbridge Line Five pipeline, uh, which moves petroleum from Western Canada to the east through Michigan, uh, Michigan uh-huh. wants it shut down. So, what's going on? Well, uh, that's. <laughs> That's a, that's a that's a political problem rather than a physical pipeline problem, as far as I'm concerned. This is a, the, the, the governor of the state of Michigan saying that it's it's a threat to the Straits of Mackinac, which links Huron and Michigan, and could contaminate the Great Lakes and so on and so forth. That pipeline's been around for like 68 years, and it's taken all the you know six centuries for uh, somebody to say, well, that's not a very good pipeline anymore. So. It's uh, it's there's it knocking heads here. We've got uh, Michigan knocking heads with uh, with, uh, with with southern with southern Ontario. That's where the refining hub for Eastern Canada is, and is in Sarnia, and that's where the Western Canadian select uh, uh, ends up. So it's it's quite a a tough situation to be in. We've got nothing, nobody to blame but ourselves. North of the border, we didn't have any uh, pipelines going from west to east uh, completely through Canada. So uh, now we're paying the price. Obviously, there are ramifications for eastern and western Canada if that pipeline is non-functional. Roger, in 30 seconds, just talk about what would happen in western Canada if if line find gets shut down. Well, that uh, supplies uh, 590,000 barrels a day of a Western Canadian Select. So if that, that all of a sudden is not required, you're going to have some uh, financial considerations in, in, West, in Western Canada, that's for sure. In, in the East, I could see prices, prices jump uh, between 12 and 16 cents a litre virtually overnight if that, that, that pipeline is shut down. But I don't think it's going to happen. I think this is a lot of political uh, feather puffing, if you like. And uh, the politicians will form a committee to delay a decision, and this will carry on for a couple of months now at least. Roger McKnight, Chief Petroleum Analyst with NPRO, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Roger, thank you so much. We appreciate this. You're very welcome. Take care. It's our small town salute, and today we are bending the rules for the small town salute. We like to do this every so often, Loren. Yeah, and it's for a pretty good reason today, because even though the folks we're about to speak to apply their trade in Winnipeg, 
their product is essentially everywhere but Winnipeg. They are bringing new life to something which is pretty popular these days, whether you're looking for a new or used camper trailer inventory is tight, Greg. That's an understatement. Yeah, so we want to introduce you to a company who is taking old travel trailers and RVs and turning them into rolling masterpieces. Our guest, Megan Clarehue, is operations manager with Revolution Trailers. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having us on. Well, you bet. And the, the let me tell you, masterpiece was the only word I could come up with because some of the work that you've done on some of these old trailers is absolutely unbelievable. So camper trailers, travel trailers, RVs, however you categorize them, you know, people call them different things. What you're doing at Revolution feels like one of my favorite HGTV shows, Fixer Upper on Wheels. Am I close? Yeah, we always think that we should have camera crews following us around. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Well, we are um, a fairly new company that started actually just before the pandemic. Um, And what we do is basically we take older model travel trailers, RVs, like you said, and we can do just about anything to them. So if you have one that you absolutely love, but maybe it's seen some better days or you like the size of it, but maybe the layout isn't quite right for you anymore, we can change that. We can make them into pretty much anything you want. Now, your website uh, has several amazing project, product, uh, projects featured. You also talk about the fact that you are saving thousands upon thousands of pounds of trailers uh, from going to the landfill. So what's the biggest issue for older trailers? Is it water damage? Water damage is huge. Rodent damage is huge. Um, you know, even with the best of intentions and the best maintenance, there's certain things that tend to go on tra- trailers more than anything else. And water damage is huge, especially the ones with the slide-outs. You know, often they sit alone in a field for years sometimes, and weather, are, you know, our, our climates are harsh here, so weather just takes a toll on them. So water damage is almost every single one we get. And for a lot of people, it's daunting, it's overwhelming, and it's easier to just toss it. And so we're, we're really hoping that we can offer an alternative to people. We're a a bit of a green company here. We pride ourselves in reusing everything we can, salvaging everything that we can, but then repairing and just sort of taking it to next level. Well, then it's an incentive to to buy from you because if you're you're feeling like you want to make sure you're contributing to the green economy, so to speak, this is the way to do it. And you then prevent so much from going to the landfill. What's kind of the numbers that you use in terms of what you're stopping from heading to the dump, Megan? Geez, well, we, our, our shop is located just on the very, very edge of Winnipeg. And um, actually, if you Google us, it does say that we're in Oak Bank. But we are in the industrial park in North Transcona, and we're down that strip where all the wrecking yards are. And if you travel down Springfield Road, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of RVs sitting in those wrecking yards that are just done. And we've calculated since we started, and I think that last count, we were somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of about, uh, oh, geez, I forget now, 72,000 pounds or something of RVs that we've sort of brought back from the brink and saved from, from being one of those ones that you see in those landfills. And so we're, we're really proud of that. We're, you know, it's, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. So, yeah, we're really proud of that. 
And, and when I say these are rolling masterpieces, uh, is it the 72 Golden Eagle? Am I getting this correct? Where you actually put... Yeah, the Golden Falcon. Oh, Golden Falcon. Yeah, where yeah. you actually put wood beams in this thing. Like this thing is nicer than my dining room and my, and my bathroom in my house. It doesn't compare to the bathroom you've put into these things. Just try and paint a picture before we let people... Uh, before we let you go, how how extensive some of these renovations ha- have been on these trailers? Well, that one was our, that we call that one our Cadillac model. What we did with that one is we did everything we could possibly think as sort of a showpiece to show people what's possible. So this was a typical 1970. It had the, the very garish interior, lots of dark wood and very bold patterned upholstery and things like that. And the, the owner of our company, our big boss, he's a tall guy. And he kind of just skimmed the he- his head on the roof of that one. And he said, I've got this idea. Why don't we raise the roof on this one? And so we actually peeled the roof off kind of like a can of sardines and then started building it sort of from the inside up. And we raised it about eight inches. And that those wood support beams that you see in there became both part of the design aesthetic, but it also became function. And we put a rooftop deck on that one. So you can go up. We call it the sunset deck. So you can go up there and watch the sunset from your favorite camping spot. And, and yeah, so we got some height, um, you know, made it feel much roomier and bigger inside. And then you also get the bonus of the added space up top. That sounds amazing. Are you, how, how much, what's the demand like this year, Megan? What are you hearing from people? Oh, people are loving it. Again, we're quite new, so we're really working on getting our, our name out in front of people. But with the dealerships, the RV dealerships reporting record low inventory levels and stuff like that there's a lot of people that have these campers and trailers you know in their back 40 on their parents property one that's kind of been not used for a while so because people can't just go off to a dealership and easily get something they're they're bringing those ones out of the the back fields and stuff like that and bringing them to us and and we're just offering an, an you know another option an alternative to buying something new because there are a lot of ones out there that aren't being used to their, you know, their full potential. And, and so we're here to, to offer another choice. Megan, where do people go online if they want to learn more about you? They can go to revolutiontrailers.ca or on Instagram and Facebook where Revolution Trailers MB. Megan Clarehue, Operations Manager with Revolution Trailers, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been fun. I, 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 I've sort of tumbled down a rabbit hole here uh, I made a little distracted looking at all these pics. So, so am I. <laughs> like this is like they look like houses with the fine finishing in these trailers. It's amazing. Yeah, this is beautiful stuff. So Megan, thank you very much. And once again, small town salute every Thursday, right after Global News at seven thirty. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Question of the day, cjob.com, brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. And the question that went up yesterday afternoon somewhat ties in with what we're about to talk about in a moment here. The question was, some people are predicting that a resignation boom is coming. Do you anticipate changing jobs When the pandemic is over, 64% say, no, I'm happy where I am. 18% say, would love to, but can't. And 18% say, yes, I've realized life is too short to not do what I love. 
castervotecjob.com. Now, we've mentioned a couple of times this week, it's National Nurses Week. Yesterday was International Nurses Day. But thanks to Tara messaging us on our 680CJOB Instagram, we were alerted that this week is also honoring another important branch of our overtaxed healthcare system, Greg. Yeah, that's right. It's called Health. Pardon me. I'll start this again. It's Allied Healthcare Professionals Week, and Bob Morose is the president of the Manitoba Association of Healthcare Professionals. Bob, nice to speak with you again. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on this morning. Nice to speak with you. It's obviously a critical part of our overtaxed uh, healthcare system right now. But for those that don't know, what is an allied healthcare professional? Sure, that's a really great question. Um, you know, at uh, MACP, we represent over 6,500 frontline people, and we work in 190 distinct healthcare disciplines across the province. And that's from hospitals to community clinics, from laboratories to diagnostic imaging, um, ambulances to ERs to ICUs, and absolutely everywhere in between. So, um, you know, we're the technologists who run the tests. Uh, to tell us what's wrong. We're the respiratory therapists who keep us breathing in ICU and COVID wards at the moment, therapists who get us back on our feet, um, who've been redeployed in large numbers. Um, and I mean, boy, how much time do you have? Because I can go on. Every every single one of these 190 disciplines um, is essential to our healthcare delivery. Well, Bob, it's a good example of all the things we perhaps don't think of, right? You know, when you think of hospital system, you often are talking about doctors and nurses, but there's just so many important players that help us get back on our feet as you said this i mean it's we know how challenging this year has been for your members for anybody who's working with in hospitals but what are you hearing from staff in terms of just what things are like as we work our way through this third wave well uh certainly each and every one of our members is facing incredible strain um these aren't easy jobs on a good day for example, and then there haven't been many good days since March of last year. It, it certainly seems to be getting worse by the day. And certainly as we're heading into uh, um, higher numbers and higher admissions and um, uh, all of those sorts of things, uh, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of stories I could tell. But I'll, I'll give you one example of, of um, something that's uh, perhaps easier to, to wrap our heads around. If, um, you know, I've heard from respiratory therapists and ICUs, uh, we're working back-to-back 12-hour shifts. Um, literally being told to eat on their way to work because they're not likely to get a break. Um, you know, handling double or triple their normal and safe patient loads, uh, seeing some of their patients die from this virus. And then they get up and do it again the next day because if they don't, things are going to get so much worse. So, uh, I mean, our members are so dedicated, but the pandemic is, is, is putting everybody um, really to the test. And we've been in that situation even before the pandemic began. Has the pandemic caused people in the field to quit their jobs? Uh, I know a lot of members who have decided that uh, they are going to definitely be moving up their retirement if they haven't already. So um, you have to remember that a lot of our folks, we've, we've gone through transformations that um, you know didn't make a lot of sense in terms of uh, frontline patient care. Uh, so we definitely lost some uh, valuable um um, experience uh, of our top end. A lot of people had decided early on, uh, and and it's similar is true, uh, you know, through the pandemic. Um, they 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 want to be at work, but at some point, it, it's you know maybe it's just time for me to um, you know retire because I just can't do it anymore, and uh, that's hard on people. They don't want to 
be seen as, as, as leaving in a, in a crisis. But you have to remember that these are human beings and they're people with family and friends and they have to care for themselves as well. So I've heard many stories of people um, just uh, saying, I, I can't do it anymore. And we're talking about people who are programmed a little bit differently uh, than the rest of us. The, their first priority seems to be, at least from the from the professionals that I'm familiar with, it's a sort of a care for others first approach, Bob. And so for them mm-hmm. to walk away from their chosen profession, something that they love doing, uh, speaks volumes about that stress and pressure they've been under over the last 15 months, because under normal circumstances, it's pressure filled. Well, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm so proud to, to lead a group of such dedicated people. Uh, but it also is heartbreaking for me to, to watch what this is, is doing. Um, and it, it's, you know, part of the stress is, is that, that there does really seem to be, uh, you know, um, lack of real support for those frontline health workers. There's, like we talked about earlier, there's a lack of understanding of what it is an allied health professional does, right? You, you started off by saying we often think of doctors and nurses, and, and certainly those folks are very important. But uh, allied health professionals um, are not any less important. Um, it, it, it is a team, and it, it, it's, and it's frustrating, and it's demoralizing that uh, you know, when when government or employers even speak of healthcare workers, um, you know, allied health is, if mentioned at all, uh, a bit of an afterthought. So um, that's demoralizing in itself, right? So you, you're, there's a lack of recognition almost across the board. Um, it's really disappointing. It's hard to watch our members, um, you know, go through that. Um, and, it, and it's something that we work at almost every day. And this Allied Health Professionals Week is meant to um, really celebrate the work that they do, um, because quite honestly, sometimes if, if we don't do that celebration, um, it just doesn't happen. So uh, this week is is meant to have some celebrations for them. And we have a number of events that our members can participate in just to sort of uh, take their mind off, engage with one another in a, in a situation where um, it's not about um, conflict or the stress. It's just something to um, distract, ha- try and have a little bit of fun with some colleagues um, and celebrate the fact that um, we are allied health professionals and we're just as critical as anybody else in the system. Bob Moreau is president of the Manitoba Association of Healthcare Professionals. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we are asking you this morning to text us at 204 780 about your favorite spots in Manitoba. Mike says, at the risk of giving away our secret place and letting others know, I have to tell you that our favorite place are the cabins at High Lake, which are operated by Falcon Trails Resort. The cabins are off-grid, and you have to walk about an hour to access them, but the serenity and location are a real hidden gem. The cabins are true five-star if you ever get a chance to book it, do it. So, Mike, thank you for that. And we're one of the reasons we're asking you this question today is I think these things are important. It's important for us to re- recognize the things that we cherish in this province because today we are recognizing a sad milestone, and that's the fact that 1,000 Manitobans have now died of COVID-19. That grim milestone includes Brett Monique, and Perry Buat, a couple living in St. Anne, Manitoba, who died less than two weeks apart back in November. They left behind two adult children with developmental disorders, Loren. 
680 CGOB's Tristan Field-Jones spoke with a health care worker who was close friends with the couple and then stepped up when the family needed it most. My name is Céline Petit and I run the kitchen at the Pavillon at the Villa Uphill. I get everything organized from the menu to deal with diets and deal with everything that has to do with anything for the food for, for all the residents that are living in the assisted living department. I met Monique because she was one of the home care workers there. From pretty much day one, her and I had clicked and we became just inseparable. I found her to be like an amazing mother, an amazing wife. You know, she was a straight shooter too. So she, she did, wasn't shy to tell you what her thoughts were either. So, and that's what I really liked about her. She was very honest and open. She just liked to hang out and have tea. And sometimes we go shopping because shopping was a big part because she always enjoyed doing that. Perry, you know, he would end up coming to the kitchen and just doing little part-time work so just to keep him busy. And Perry was going to school at the same time to upgrade into his IT department for the for computers. Perry was determined and, and very caring and he would be like there for you and he was there for everybody. He was just an amazing guy. Perry really liked technology when it came to computers and fixing them and doing everything that he could and he would challenge himself all the time. They met at Salisbury House. <laughs> she was a waitress, he was a customer and, and you know they became friends and then next thing you know well you know magic showed up and have two kids and they ended up being like together forever I guess you'd have to say and I think it was 33 years. So Adam He's 33 years old, he's the oldest, and he has autism. So he's been staying home and spending a lot of time on the computer and just going outside for walks. Jessalyn's 26 years old, well now she's 27, she just had a birthday, she's an artist. She also has mental health disabilities there too. You know, she spends time doing her art and getting her stuff done and going through the motions. They all went for flu shots on October 23rd, and then on the 25th, Jesslyn, the daughter, she ended up having symptoms, and she went the next day to get uh, tested for COVID. She was told on Wednesday that she was positive, so the whole family went and got tested, and they never found out till Tuesday morning that they were all positive. That morning, we were trying to get a hold of Manik, and we were not able to come to the house because we were all also in isolation too. She was tired. She just wanted a good sleep. When I talked to her the night before, she said she would go to the hospital the next day, but we were too late. And it just ended up being that she ended up passing away in her sleep. When we called the ambulance on Manek, we had said to the ambulance driver, I think we need another ambulance because Perry is very sick. He wasn't even thinking himself. He felt he didn't have to go because he didn't want to leave the kids behind. It looked like he was getting better, but then he ended up catching that COVID pneumonia and it just took him. At the end, they ended up calling the kids and the kids were able to say goodbye to their dad, and um, which gave him a little bit of closure, which was a lot more than what they got with Manek.
when I was leaving home on the, the 19th, I came upstairs and I looked at my sister and I said to her, you know what, Colette? She goes, well, I think I'm going to move in with the kids. And the kids never asked me yet. And Colette goes, really? And I go, yeah, I'm going to go move in with the kids right now, like tomorrow. So it just seemed to have been the proper thing to do. Just being here is, is just such a beautiful gift for me. I'm not married. I have no kids. So, you know, the thing is, is for me to take this time and be here with them, it, it's also a blessing for me too, because it fills a gap in my life also. Monique would have done this for anyone that she loved as much as I love her. So there's just no hesitation. You, you know, you do what you need to do for the people that you love in your life. It's hard to, to believe that they're gone. And it's every day we're like, this just always will always seem unreal, no matter what. Where has this happened that the two parents have passed from COVID in such a short period of time? I really love Monique. And when I see the kids every day, I know that the kids are loved by me and they were loved by their parents. Perry made me laugh. He always made us laugh because he really didn't listen to what we were saying. <laughs> so Perry, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to miss Perry just for everything that he had to offer in his kind heart. The kids, after losing the parents, they didn't have much hope. And it's been very hard emotionally on the children. One of the, the cats here ended up getting a UTI infection, which caused, at the same time, his small intestine to be closed and blocked. We didn't want the cat to suffer anymore. And we went to say farewell to the cat, and the kids were very upset about it. But when we went to go pick up the cat, the vet said, hey, he passed it through everything. It was a bloody miracle. I couldn't even believe it. We were just in shock. So when we ended up bringing the cat home and with just that little hope, the, the kids feel relief for one, but they believe now. They believe that, you know, things do happen positively at the end. And now with the weather being so nice and them going out for walks and taking just taking time for themselves. They're doing a, a lot better now than they ever have. Monique Burat passed away on November 3rd, 2020. Perry Burat passed away on November 19th, 2020. Monique was 55 and Perry was 57. Thank you very much, Tristan Field-Jones, for bringing us this feature. And we are working on a web story where you'll be able to revisit this at cjob.com. Mackling McGarry McNabb, before we get into what we're about to talk about, I just, I got to mention this text message uh, because we're asking you about your favorite spot in Manitoba. And Bruce says, got to say... My summer campsite at Minnedosa. Yeah. But what really sh shocked me is that this is from Bruce in Nebawa. Yes. 
See, even he knows the truth. <laughs> it is a nice campground. It's right on the lake. You got access to a big park there. There's soccer fields around. The views are tremendous. The lake is just the right temperature. The valley is stunning. The sunset's unreal. There you go. Wow. They also have that water park now at the beach. That Splish Splash Water Park. park. Yep. Yeah, but I, uh, in the text exchange, I said, now, if Bruce is really on his game, he'll point out that the campground is just outside town limits. Nobody says that. <laughs> Nobody campground. says that. It's Minidosa Beach Campground <laughs> on Minidosa Lake, just north of the Minidosa Bison Park in Minidosa. <laughs> Nobody says that's not Minidosa. Cut it out. What are the RM of Odana there? And the Heritage Village. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Nobody says that. <laughs> Call me from Minidosa if I'm wrong. I will I will give you my cell out loud. I'm so outraged by this statement. <laughs> All right, question of the day. And by the way, keep those texts coming. 915, we're giving away $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. Question of the day, brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. How is your internet and cellular service? Your options are both are good. Internet good, cellular bad, internet bad, cellular good, or both are garbage. Cast your vote, cjob.com. And the reason why we're asking this question this morning is at 11 o'clock, Premier Brian Pallister, uh, alongside, uh, I've lost the, I can't remember who's going to be with him. Reg Hewler. Yes, yes, thank you, Central Services Minister. Uh, They're talking about the expansion of rural broadband and cellular services. So I live in Winnipeg, and for the most part, my service is fine, but I know that anytime I leave Winnipeg, especially like if I'm a passenger on a highway, Loren, yeah. and I want to use my cell phone, there are spots where it is dead. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, every time I've ever gone, uh, well, quite frankly, when I come out of the city, just south of the perimeter, there's a dead zone that I hit. And I often would be on the way home from work, you know, pre-pandemic and be calling people to chat on the way home safely with the Bluetooth, of course. And, and uh with the call would drop out right there. I mean, I'm barely outside of the perimeter, let alone when you're in rural areas where you need that technology, not just because it's nice to connect, but right now people are using internet more than ever before. If you're either working at home or kids are doing remote learning. And so that's a challenge if you don't have a strong internet. And then there's the safety issue, Greg. I mean, we were talking about forest fires this week, some in Sandyland, some burning near uh, in the White Shell area. And so when you have a safety situation and you can't use your phone that becomes a real problem so it was i think about a year ago that manitoba announced that it was going to use that existing technology that was built by hydro back in the day for northern work camps to augment rural high-speed internet so i'm curious what the announcement is today and how they're going to improve upon that because how many times do we have listeners talk to us about just the challenges even their landlines sometimes don't work well let alone cell service I was up near Lockport yesterday, went for a hot dog with the boys, and we love to do the drive down uh, River Road on the way back, and then there are a couple of new developments we deke into, and I was trying to look up something, pulled over to look up, and there was a house for sale, and I'm a sucker for for sale signs, so I need to know how much are they asking for said house, <laughs> and I couldn't get on the internet in the middle of this residential area right off of Highway 9, off of Main Street, and you encounter it, like you say, close to the city, sometimes inside the city, but the issue is genuinely horrible for so many communities outside of Winnipeg. I mentioned my adventure to Bloodvein First Nation 10 years ago. I do not know what the situation is there now, but I know 10 years ago they had no cell service. 
in that community of about 1,500 to 2,000 people on the east side of Lake Winnipeg. And we talk about forest fires. There's also tornadoes, amber alerts, all sorts of situations where we need to get information instantaneously. It's emergency information tied to our safety or the safety of others. Yeah, this is a long time in coming. And that Manitoba Hydro Fiber Optics Network, if they could utilize that somehow, some way, it's the biggest fiber optics network in in Manitoba. So I I think it's time long overdue, in fact, for us to get all over this, Brett. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, we are asking you to tell us about your favorite spot in Manitoba. $20 gift card, Santa Lucia Pizza, up for grabs. And we've had so many awesome texts, and we had lots of stuff on Clear Lake, and people referencing Napaming and the White Shell, and the list goes on and on and on. We've got three texts we want to read here. I'll start with Gene's text. We read, shared this earlier, but this was just so lovely that it bears sharing again. Gene says, favorite spot in Manitoba is the parking lot on the north side of the waterfront complex in Gimli, where I can look up to the third floor balcony and still picture my dad standing there calling down, hi, honey, come on up. That is just so sweet. Gene, thank you for that. Uh, That made us all uh, smile. This was a tough choice. Surely Greg paints a wonderful picture as well. Yeah, one of my most awesome Manitoba places is canoeing down the LaSalle River. The lush vegetation takes my breath away as I paddle into an Amazon-like surrounding with turtles, ducks, and even the odd muskrat playing or sunning alongside the river. The greenery creates a tunnel-like experience, beautiful and peaceful. And uh, that text message actually prompted one that I got on my personal phone, Brett. I hate to (laughs) tell you this, but... um, Somebody was listening, a a friend that's common to us both says, my favorite place in Manitoba is anywhere but canoeing on the LaSalle River when Brett (laughs) is golfing. Hey, John, uh, if you're still listening, (laughs) you're right. (laughs) I know it was you, and uh, you're right. You don't want to be anywhere near that river when I am teeing off uh, near the river. But uh, Christine is our winning text, Loren. She just paints uh, also a wonderful picture. Yeah, and she has me thinking two things at once, wanting to hurry up and get to the summer so we can hopefully have some time with our families or maybe go back in time. It's making me think of trips I had with my family growing up. Christine texted to say, my favorite place is the cottage we rent every year out in Matlock. Whitewald Emporium has the best crepes. The beach is small and quiet. My fiancé and I sit on the porch every morning before our two kids wake up, drink our coffee, and read our books. We go for evening bike rides and walks with the kids and complete at least two 1,500-piece puzzles in the two weeks we spend there. It is our favorite place ever. But the best part about it is the memories we have when my in-laws come from Toronto and Whitehorse. My family would come out from the city and we would have a big, fun family barbecue with lots of sun and Caesars. For obvious reasons, it didn't happen last year. It probably won't happen this year. So even though it will only be the four of us, we're still very much looking forward to this escape. And we're still determined to make this best summer ever for our kids who have been nothing but resilient for the last 14 months. Congratulations, Christine. That's our winning text. I mean, how this place must be awesome when she says the best part about it is the memories we have when my in-laws would come in. Like, she actually looks forward to the in-laws. So this place must be magical. 
Yeah, Trump's everything, right? <laughs> That's how I love hanging is. with my in-laws. They're oh. great. They have so many great. Are they games. listening this morning, Lorraine? They have. They make good Caesars. No, I'm serious. Probably, but <laughs> I am saying that because it's true. <laughs> good Caesar. That's a good skill. To they know have. how to get to me. That's probably they probably do it on purpose. We'll just <laughs> so get our Caesar stump going. Caesar stump. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb as vaccine eligibility opens to all Manitobans over the age of 18. Manitoba now focuses on getting those appointments filled. And there is a new initiative which was launched earlier this week. It is called Protect Our People. That's right, Brett. The new Protect Our People MB campaign was created to encourage vaccine confidence and uptake among young First Nations people throughout our province. This grassroots campaign is an effort led by the Southern Chiefs Organization, MKO, AMC, KIM, the First Nations Health and Social Secretariat of Manitoba, and Loren, the Manitoba government. And this is an important move, I think, because not only is our test positivity rate rising and we're watching those variants of concern and the growing number of them, they're hitting younger age brackets. We've been talking about that for weeks. And so this program is looking to overcome the fact that some might choose not to be vaccinated, either because of misinformation or fears about the virus or the vaccine. Protect Our People in Manitoba focuses on those 18 to 35, and it's going to really use social media platforms in partnership with recognized First Nation influencers who are trusted in those communities and and their leaders who are trusted. And they're looking to talk about why the vaccine is important to them, how it can protect people, their elders and communities as a whole. So they've got a long list of people who are helping out, like Michael Redhead Champagne, uh, Brandy Woodhouse, Leonard Sumner, and of course, our next guest, Indigenous content creator and comedian, Sherry McKay. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning. Well, what? Let's start with your TikTok following. Uh, according to your Instagram bio, where you have over 11,000 followers, you have 370,000 followers on TikTok. Is that right? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Great. Well, congratulations. In a, in a world where that's important for what you do, that's amazing. So tell us about the content that you're putting on, on there already. Um, I kind of do uh, a bunch of different things, but I like to focus on Indigenous comedy and awareness um, and kind of just have a space for our um, for our Indigenous people and, of course, our allies to enjoy some, you know, information and then have a couple of laughs along the way as well. Indigenous comedy does that does that leave others out, Sherry? To walk us down that road and, and tell us about how that that builds allyship and and uh, relationships amongst Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians alike. It's really interesting because when I first started doing the, the Indigenous-focused comedy, it was from my perspective as an Indigenous person. But then, you know, considering TikTok is such a, a worldwide app, there were so many other ethnicities that were like, I do that. You know, my auntie says that. Mm-hmm. And so it created this really cool, like, camaraderie amongst all of us. So it wasn't just specific Indigenous content. It was just from my perspective as an Indigenous person. And so it created such a really neat um, space for all of us to learn from each other that it's not just Indigenous people that say or do these things, but there's a lot of other, you know, people out there that experience the same things. Now, this initiative to get young Manitobans vaccinated, obviously, is very important. Getting the message out to Indigenous youth is critical. So how did you become involved and, and why is this important to you? 
Um, how I became involved was I, I was definitely one of those people that were on the fence because it was like, oh my goodness, is, you know, if I take the vaccine, am, am I going to grow an extra arm or, you know, like, are they inserting something in me? And so that's how I felt. And so because I was on the fence for so long that I ended up getting COVID myself. And it's something that like, I completely regret taking so much time to make those decisions. And so that's why this is super important to me because we're not, you don't know, you don't know what you're going to do when you get that positive test. You're not prepared for it at all. I'm a mom of four and, you know, the kids don't stop being hungry. They don't stop needing hugs. The bills still need to get paid. And so like, this is so extremely important for me because if we can, if we can do something to be proactive, to, you know, to stop this so that we can eventually move forward together in solidarity for a better, (laughs) for a, for a, I guess for a a better outlook on life in the future, that this is something that has become really important to me. Can we talk a bit about that diagnosis, Sherry, and and the day you learned you had COVID and and terms, or you had been infected and, and what sort of was the outcome for you? Everyone, there's been such a wide range of experiences, right, from people who have had it. What did you go through? For sure. Like, I, I had very, very, like, I have seasonal allergies. So I'm, I'm sniffling and, you know, like, so my son was ill and I went to take him to go get tested. And I was like, you know, I'll get tested with you, you know, be, you know, trying to help him out because he was mm. scared. And then, you know, the next day I came back that my test was positive and like my heart just sunk because now I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to get groceries. Like I still have to go cash this check to pay my rent and I can't go anywhere and I can't do anything. And then just thinking of the other people in my household and how I'm going to take care of everyone because now I can't cook for them and now I can't hug them and now I can't care for them. And so that was like extremely um, saddening for me and my kids. And we're all just like stuck in this limbo situation of like, what do we do? Like, what can I do? And then still not understanding, okay, well, when is my isolation period end? And what can I do to help alleviate the symptoms that we have? And when do we go to emergency? Should we need to? And, you know, it's, it's very traumatic, and I was not expecting that. I, I was, you know, thinking I just had some seasonal allergies. And so you don't really think of those things and all of the stuff that you need to prepare so that you can take care of yourself and your family and your loved ones. When was this, uh, Sherry? Did this happen? Yeah. You had it? Was it the spring? I just got diagnosed on Saturday, just this past Saturday. So I'm in isolation oh. right now. So just a few days ago, so up until Saturday, you weren't sure if you were going to take the vaccine? No, I was sure I was going to take the vaccine. But my, my thing was is um, the eligibility rates or uh, eligibility ages and then the different sites. And I missed the, there was like a pop-up site and I missed it because I didn't get the information. So I was really trying to get vaccinated, but I just didn't know where to go and the information wasn't out there. But now there's all of this amazing information on protectourpeoplemb.ca that lists the urban indigenous vaccination sites and has all of that information now. And, but, you know, as they were bringing the ages down and because it was just the older people 50 and up that could go, and then they were slowly bringing the ages down. And I was like, yes, I can get it. And then 
all of a sudden I, I got COVID. Wow. Well, our thoughts are with you, Sherry, and with your family. And just a note here, our friends at the Broadway Neighborhood Centre, Spatch uh, texted me early this morning at the Broadway Neighborhood Centre, and they have another pop-up clinic going today, so they have more vaccine there. You do not have to sign up, just show up and get your shot. And so, Sherry, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to your story, not realizing that the the punchline to go into your comedian world is the fact that you're dealing with COVID right now, and there's nothing funny about that. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about your seasonal allergies and everything. Do you think the fact that you're a mom and your first priority uh, for most moms is to look after others, do you think that got in the way of you getting tested in the first place? And and just, uh, you know, oh gosh, if this is positive, the, the ramifications of that. Maybe walk us through that and, and and how you're dealing with it overall. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, I all of the things, everything just stops once you get that positive test. You got to go straight home. You can't, you can't stop at the grocery store. You can't do any of those things. <clears throat> Sorry. And we do take care of everyone else before we take care of ourselves, which is, it's kind of just the way it's always been. And, you know, now it's a time where you have to take care of yourself so that you can take care of your family. I mean, like we've been trying to do all of these things to help ensure that if we ever did get sick, that, you know, we would have, we would have some neocitrine and like some Tylenol and stuff like that. But, you know, like I said, nothing really prepares you. Um, And right now, you know, having to take care of all of my kids and they're all at, they're sick too. My children are sick too. So having to take care of them where they're all at different stages and it's like, you know, do you have a, do you have a headache today? Oh, you know, like just trying to constantly take care of them while I'm trying to take care of myself too. So you said, you mentioned that you thought it was just seasonal allergies. That would have been a few days ago. How are you feeling today? Like right now, what sort of symptoms have you experienced? Um, I'm feeling a bit better. I still have like a a headache, a throbbing headache and then like light sensitivity. (laughs) So we're all like, you know, walking around in the dark and, you know, (laughs) feeling like I'm like, we got to go outside for a little bit, like just go get a little bit of fresh air in the courtyard, you know, and then come back into into the darkness. I feel like a vampire. Like I'm like, when I go outside, because my, because my head hurts, but you know, my symptoms, they have, um, they kind of come and they go, you know, Oh, I'm feeling better. And then all of a sudden you get these like weird aches and like they're in the weirdest places, like that you would not even think that you could get an ache. You know, it's like my, my thumb all of a sudden, like my thumb is hurting. you know, <laughs> And like, my kids are like, that is so weird. Cause they're experiencing the same thing too. And you just don't like you just don't know what you're going to experience. Sherry, I was a, sorry. I was just going to say I was going to drop off a meal for you just when you said you were a mom of four, and then you threw in this whole COVID experience. Just so my hats off to you on a number of fronts. I mean, kudos, man. What's your message to people within your community, outside your community, just all Manitobans when it comes to the vaccine, man? Because you're really living the experience we've all thought about over the last year. I would say that, you know, it's important to feel comfortable with your choice. But like for myself, I took too long 
uh, the resources weren't really there at the time for me to feel comfortable making that decision. And then when I was like, hey, I'm doing it, it was too late. You know, it was too late for me. So I would say, you know, um, ask questions, you know, do some research. There's so many pop-up sites and, and walk-in places that you can go and get your vaccination. And, you know, I know that um, th- there's a lot of talk about it right now because now there's so many people that are eligible for it, right? And I wouldn't say to, to pressure people into it, but I would say make sure that you feel comfortable but also, like, think of your family and your loved ones. It was my mom's birthday yesterday, and, like, I could just call her, you know? Like, not that I could, we, not that we could all gather and have a big, huge party and cake and everything, but, you know, um, my mom's very important to me. Mother's Day was, I couldn't even go visit my grandmother, you know, all of these things that, that we just, we want to be able to show love to one another and hug our family members, and I feel like, this is just one of the only ways that we can move forward into doing those things. So it's a, it's a call to action to, you know, think about where we want to be within the next six months to a year and kind of just, you know, move forward. Sherry McKay, Indigenous content creator and comedian, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for joining us to tell us about this important initiative. Thank you for having me. And we hope you feel better too, you and your kids. Thank you. And again, the website, protectourpeoplemb.ca. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.